What I want to talk about today is sort of two questions, one that's very broad and then one that's a little bit narrower. So the broad question is sort of what is or what should be the relationship between our experiences in private life, maybe at home, um, and our work in public leadership roles, however we are involved in those. And I mean that both in the Jewish community and outside of the Jewish community. Um, and I think there's a sort of, the next question is how connected should those two things be? And really like, or are there even really two distinct public-private spheres at all, right? Which is like, and, and I think there's a conventional reading of the American founders and of sort of the American approach to things like freedom of religion that takes it to be the case that there's a strong division between the public and private, right? So religion is what I do in private, and in public life I have different kinds of, I have you know, other commitments, my religious commitments don't really belong there, you know, it's just about kind of what goes on in my house, maybe in my, you know, place of worship, in, kind of in my head. People can come in, it's okay. Okay, um, fine. So I, um, and I think that, anyway, this is a sort of conventional reading. Um, I'm going to bring some rabbinic text that will have a different reading of how to arrange those different things. Um, but I wanted to start with, um, there are many more sheets than people. Everyone can have five sheets. Um, to start with two texts that kind of just state the background view and state the view that says that these two things should be totally separate. Um, and they're not American texts, but they're texts that I think in different ways are sort of found authors who are foundational for a kind of American and European tradition of thinking about this. I'll thank Avital for giving me the first one, um, and I'll make her read it. <laughs> okay. Um, you want, like, kindred? Yeah. Okay. Just, um, just read it. <laughs> then turning from the consideration of such hindrances to the study of philosophy, Eloise bade me observe what were the conditions of honorable wedlock. What possible concord could there be between scholars and domestics, between authors and cradles, between books or tablets and distaffs, between the stylus or the pen and the spindle? What man, intent on his religious or philosophical meditations, can possibly endure the whining of children, the lullabies of the nurse seeking to quiet them, or the noisy confusion of family life? Who can endure the continual untidiness of children? Okay, so this is, this is a sort of um, medieval intellectual philosopher who is in love with this woman, Eloise, and Eloise, and he says to Eloise, like, let's get married. Eloise says, it's a really bad idea because family life is such a mess that you'll never get any good philosophy done ever. And I think this is a kind of prevailing view that, like, is definitely forceful in, in academia, in, in the, the work that I do, that, like, the sort of requ intellectual work requires quiet, and families are incompatible with that quiet. Um, and, and so that's, that's like I think one strand that I think leads us to sort of separate private life and family life from, from what goes on in public because what goes on in public is supposed to reflect a kind of rational, carefully considered view of how we approach things. Um, and then the second is, is from Thomas Hobbes, um, you know, a, a sort of important political theorist who's definitely on the minds of some of the American founders. And he says, let us consider men as if but now even sprung out of the earth and suddenly, like mushrooms, come to full maturity without all kind of engagement to each other. So Hobbes' idea is that like, to be a citizen, you're just sort of supposed to pop up. You're not supposed to have had any kind of childhood. You're not supposed to have like, grown or developed. You're just, you just kind of present yourself as an adult, and that's how you enter the public sphere. Um, so the question I want to ask is, like, to what extent do, do, does your rabbinic text present a view that's different than this one? And if so, how is it different? And this leads me to consider a narrower kind of question, which is, like, what kinds of things, either experiences or texts or, like, family stories or relationships with particular people, make us more responsible participants in public life? 
in Jewish life, both in Jewish public life and in you know, sort of broader political public life. So let's take a little poll. Don't an- you don't need to answer aloud. Think of one such experience in your life, or like what is something that's made you a more responsible person in potentially in like your roles in the in a community or as a citizen, etc. Based on private life. Based on something that might right. So some sort of experience or a text or a family story or a relationship with a particular person, any of those. Okay, everybody got one? Just one. All right, so how many people thought of a relationship with a particular person? Okay, that's, that's a big, big chunk. Okay, particular, like, singular moment or, like, kind of defined experience. Almost no one. Okay, great. And family story? One, two. Text. I didn't have time to find it. That's okay. <laughs> so, but what I think is notable is nobody said text, right? And I think there's a model in a lot of Jewish life where we sort of say, like, oh, our key ideas come from text. And they come from, like, if you, if you read the Mishnah and Sanhedrin, they know that, you know, human beings are created and so then you proceed from there. Well, I think part of it is that, and, like, you know, I, I have a great love for those texts, but also it's the case that there are other kinds of experiences that play a really important role, and for a lot of us, that's relationships with particular individuals. So, Chazal are sort of on to this, and they know that relationships with particular individuals have this kind of effect. So what I want to do today is go through, I have three examples, I think probably we're going to spend our time really understanding the breaking down the first two, and then if we get to the third one, that will be a bonus. Um, of places where Chazal make it a requirement to have children in order to have some kind of leadership role in the Jewish community. Um, and the first, so there are three, so to be a shots on a fast day, to be a, a Dayan, to be a judge in a rabbinic court, and then the third is to be a witness in a rabbinic court. Um, and so, so we'll start with, with being the to leading dominant on a, on a fast day. Um, can I get someone to read the Mishnah and Tani, please? In either language. Analia, why don't you read for us? When they stand and pray, they are led by an elder who is willing to prayer, has children, and his house is empty, so that his heart will be full in prayer. Okay, so these give sort of descriptive requirements of like what kinds of family relationships the person is supposed to have. And it seems like there's a kind of underlying psychology, but it's not explicit in the Mishnah at all. So, can someone give me an explanation of like why it is that the Mishnah thinks that these are important traits to be a, a fa- like to be a, a shot on a fast day? Like what? Motivation. What? Say more. Motivation. We want the person who is who is representing us in prayer, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. To have what to pray for. Themselves, right? So it's, it's yeah. n- they can't just take on the role of, role of the whole community. They themselves need to experience that need in order to have their motivation rightly ordered. Okay. What about kids, though? Why does it matter that he has children? Right, but maybe he has what to pray for for his other kinds of family relationships, right? That idea doesn't seem to have entered the time of their lives. I would also say um, he can more... Um, for others, to pray for others. <coughs> he can maybe more fully understand the relationship between God and man if he has a relationship with, uh, with his children. So that, that's really interesting, and we're going to see a kind of explicit treatment of that in a second. Do you think it's the case that God, like, if you're thinking he better understands the relationship between God and man, this guy is a father, so does that make him, like, he understands the way God looks on people more? Or he understands what it's like to be the kid more? 
right? Because we often think of ourselves, right? Like, we why, think of people as being God's children. Why is it important to understand what it's like in, in terms of prayer, what it's like to be the kid? I, I don't know, I'm asking. Think, I think it's just going through the experience of creation. So God created human beings, human beings created other human I beings, think. and it. it um, so it only makes him more like God, right? Yeah. Well, I think it makes him more selfless. But I, I, I don't know whether that's you know, important in prayer, not to be thinking of your, only of yourself. Right, so this is really interesting, because you, you, in some ways, you're saying opposite things, the two of you, right? On the one hand, you're saying, he has what to pray for for himself, well, and that's what's to important. To pray for others, right, both. But, it, but it's, he has what to pray for within his own, like, kind of narrow circle, right? And you're saying, no, no, this is exactly what makes him able to identify with a broader range of people and to be selfless. So, maybe those cut different ways. There's a harmonization, potentially, in saying that as a parent, you might know that it is a caring obligation. Mm-hmm. Um, and in some sense, it's also like important that the house is empty, too, right? And sort of agreeing with Peter Abelard, right? That he, yeah. that he also reflected upon what it was to carry the obligation. And he had a moment of quiet. To look oh, you're reading houses empty as not having kids, as the kids have left home. Oh, that's really interesting. That is not how the Gemara reads that at all. Yeah, they read it probably as uh, doesn't have so much wealth. They read it as fi- entirely financial. That's very interesting. Like a room, okay. Also, this the whole idea of a dynamic of the family relationship, you know, and that's what we are to Hashem. We're kind of yes. family, and so understanding the, you know, the nuances of that um, in terms of having children, that, you know, right. the pluses and the minuses, or that whole rachamim and uh, um, yeah, uh, a strong hand, you know. So I think there are two things in what you said that are really interesting. The first is that it's important in order to be in this in this prayer relationship where we think of ourselves as God's children, it's important to, for you to know what it's like to be the, the parent in the scenario and not just to sort of lower yourself down to be the kid. I think a lot of the time we think of ourselves as like, right, that the sort of Avinu Malkino language tends to get us thinking like we're God's child and we're in sort of a, in a hierarchical position in that way. But one of the things that this you're drawing out is that it actually might might work differently and that we would be gaining something useful by thinking of ourselves as the kind of leader of a family. The other just one one second, the other sort of second piece that I think is really interesting that you're drawing out is that there's this sort of wait a minute, I've just lost the thread. Um, okay, let's go to you. Sorry. Okay, I just you know, you said now that you told me what the house is empty means is it's a family with children in there and yeah. Then in the Peshat, the, the, the simple explanation was not what I said before, but, yeah. but more what, what, what somebody else said, which is that he really needs to pray. Right. The father's full of prayer because he's really got what to pray for. Right, he's really, he's really yeah. extremist. He's really got a problem. Yeah, so, right. I like the, I really like reading Beethoven's comments that his kids are gone, but it's, it's, not, it's not where the Gemara goes. Okay, so let's, let's see where the Gemara goes so we don't have to sort of keep fussing with it. Um, Malika, can I get you to, to read? Uh, sure. Uh, when they stand and pray, they are led by an elder. Our rabbis taught, when they stand and pray, even if there is a wise elder, they should only be led by someone who is fluent in the prayer. Who is fluent? Rabbi Huda says, he cares for children and does not have enough, so he has to go to the work in the field and his house is empty. Okay, so at least Rabbi Yehuda does not seem to think that Beto Rekha means that, his, that he's an empty nester. Let's just start there. 
Um, just as a sort of textual point, first of all, the line that I put there between this and the next box is, is misleading, and I apologize for that because, in fact, it's all a continuation of Rabbi Yehuda's statement. But um, let's just stop here for now. So, Ezehu Ragil is in those curvy brackets, you know, who is fluent, because, in fact, it's not in most, it's only in printed editions of the Talmud, and it's probably there. It's, also it doesn't make any sense. Right, Rafi, why does it make any sense? Because, presumably, Rabbi Yehuda is glossing Vaito. Ray it seems like he's glossing Rachel Ray Khan. Uh-huh. For some reason, the Gemara wants him to say, wants to change Ragil, which seems to be about, like, does he know the words enough to actually complete the task? And making that into an economic requirement. Yeah. I just want to make one point, because um, I would like to read it as Ubetor Um Oh, actually, wait. Ubetor means... His house. It seems to be saying it in plural. Uh, and their house is empty. Not ubetore. Oh, I, I don't. Well, I, I don't. No, I think I think it's just singular. But for other people so who are more grammatically inclined, I think it's his. It's his. Okay, sorry about that. Um, okay, so yeah. So right, Rafi's right. It doesn't. It seems like this break is imported from somewhere else, at least, or it, it doesn't necessarily belong as a kind of gloss on what regil is. But the Gemara is kind of shifting it there. Um, okay. Good. So now we can now we can keep going. Um, Malika, can you read the next little box too? And his youth is becoming, and he is humble, and loved by the people. And he knows melodies, and his voice is pleasant, and he is a knowledgeable reader of Torah and prophets, and writings and midrash and halakha. Okay, who, who giggles? That was you, Rami, right? It seems awfully hard to ask this to somebody who's also poor. Yeah, and also right. And, and in Rabbi Yehuda's perspective, he was also young, right. presumably. It so, is and well, maybe he's Zakain. Rabbi Yehuda, if you take Rabbi Yehuda by himself, he's not Zakain, right? So the, the, there's a there's a look at Rabbi Yehuda and and you know the the Tanakhama and the Mishnah who just says he's supposed to be old. Rabbi Yehuda seems to imagine someone who's young, but someone who knows everything, right? So I, I mean I can't help but read this as a kind of mounting like comical list in which everything is like you know it sort of gets more and more ridiculous it's like and he knows all Torah and Vim and Ketuvim and Midrash and Halakha oh and by the way he should probably know the Brachot so he can say what he needs to say yeah Rashi I, I, I really love this text Kipol Noah is a different translation according to Rashi um, Rashi says in Ashkenazi yeah yeah my memory excuse me Afin Kush Omer Ayei Bechur well, you see that that's drawn, out of the, that's drawn right out of our Abaye. So if you skip down for, further down, you get Abaye gives you that, basically, right? Um, yeah. Right? So that he, even when he was a kid, nothing. Right. So I think that that's. Certainly in Rashi, take, glossing Kirkona that way from the beginning is just a harmonizing influence and a de- desire right, to just make all the pieces fit together, but there is a sort of muscle there. Rashi. Yeah, I guess one thing I'm wondering about in terms of the broader question of Avalard, yeah. right, is it does seem, first of all, like there's a shift between Yeshla, Banin, and Mitzupal, right, that he seems to take care of them. Yeah. And I guess I'm wondering, is the, is the kind of relationship here a relationship of responsibility or a relationship of intimacy. Right. So say if you imagine someone who is financially responsible for children in another country, 
that he has and is no longer, you know what I mean, not in a relationship with them. Would such a person qualify to die on a fast day because they have yeah. economic necessity or would they not qualify because they don't take care of children? Okay, great. Baruch Shekivanta, let's go on to the Yerushalmi because I tried to figure out what does this Mitzupal word mean and what are they describing? Does, does he die for me? Yes, exactly. Does he die for babies or is this a financial thing? I think those are the kind of two main options that I could imagine, but I'm sure there are all kinds of things in between. Um, it's a little hard because Mitzupal, that verbal form does not occur in uh, Bavli elsewhere. Really? Yeah, which I was shocked by, but it's, anyway, you can like, you can bury line it yourself and figure that out. But, okay, so I, but there are a couple places where similar kinds of forms do appear. Um, so the Rishami is, uh, Yerushalmi's Maya is one place um, and you know we don't have to see this inside but what's being described is that a father can essentially so background um, there are some people who are, have like are, are trusted to be very good at keeping track of their tithes and they're part of something called a chavura and so they're they're chavira. okay so a father can uh, cause his children to be part of that group for his kids in the case where they're in the case where he's taking care of them or something it seems on my first reading I assume that this Yerushalmi is talking about a situation where basically just talking about pure financial responsibility this is an administrative thing this is about this is about like you know who is in charge of their food and how their food is being administered and dealt with um, my, my teacher at Yale Christine Hayes pointed out to me that, that that might not be quite right because it could be that the father is actually teaching the kids how to tithe correctly. And so it's actually describing a much more involved kind of relationship where he's actually like getting them to do all the right kinds of things, you know, giving them this education, a very technical part of halakha. So it could be either of those things, but that's one place where it's used is a kind of like, are they sort of, you know, are they in his financial gambit or are they outside of it? Yeah. It just strikes me that what we, we Either way you read it, it does mean the review is saying something different than the mission. Correct. Yeah, there's no way. Or there is an existence condition for children who are not Matupal. Matupal, like. Yes. Yes. So there are, one could have children and not be whatever the the form of caregiving is. So it's not merely having kids, some form of relationship beyond that. Right. So I saw somewhere, like a Gaonic text that describes a case where somebody asked whether they can the shots can be someone whose kids are all dead. And, which is crazy. And they say yes, because he kind of has the right affective posture, which I think is really interesting and doesn't seem to follow Rabbi Yehuda, but is a really interesting, like, horrible case, but, but one in which gets to the kind of heart of what, what, what's the psychology here. Okay, so that's, that's Demai. And that seems like it, it, you know, at least it's a financial relationship or some kind of educational one. Um, the Yerushalmi in describes uses this word to describe the relationship between a husband and a wife, and says, right, so, um, and, and says, like, it describes a rabbi saying, let me be cared for in, in, let the person who cared for me in life care for me in death. That seems, I don't know how else to read that except as a, a more involved kind of intimate caregiving relationship that's not just about, like, who's taking, who's tithing your food or something like that. So, and it's also the case that in other places in the Bavli, they use this verb to describe, specifically describe taking care of dead bodies. So to me, that seems like it's a, a kind of a caregiving relationship that's not just about like who's putting the food on the table. Um, and so if, you know, then if you want to read Rabbi Yehuda, you can think about like 
it's not just he really needs the rain because otherwise his kids are going to starve. But also he's in a, and he knows on some sort of background level that that's a bad thing. It's because he's actually in a more sort of day-to-day intimate relationship with those children. And that in itself is part of what leads him to um, to be to be uh, a good person to have, to have as the shot. Um, since we talked a lot about uh, this sort of father-son relationship, I thought, just like look at this classic text in, in Tanit about Choni. Um, can someone read, can someone read Choni? Rafi, can you read? Okay. Shimon Ben Shadlach said to Sorry, yeah. Are you not Honi? I would have excommunicated you. But what can I do with you? You nag God like a son who nags his father and his father does his well. So here, nagging God like a son is not a good thing, right? This is, a, this is bad news. And so it, it seems to that like, taken, if you put all these together, you get this image you're supposed to approach God as if you're the, the, the father and the head of the household and not necessarily the, the child. This cuts against, I think, the way the fast day liturgy has actually developed, in the, right? Like, Avinu Malkinu is now this central text where over and over again we distance God from us and say, we're the child in this relationship. So there's, you know, there's complicated dynamics going on, but it does seem like, you know, Tony the kind of negative example of how you're supposed to pray on a fast day, right? Like, he's not, not someone we're supposed to be emulating, um, is, one in, is one in which he's, he acts like a child. Talks to his father. He is effective. He's effective, yeah. but also critiqued. Right, but also your father shouldn't have given you that, and so like we we kind of disapprove of the whole structure of the relationship, right? I think that I think that's. I think it's a point. Shemesh Shadak's you know comment notwithstanding that he knows how children act and what effort it takes. He made approach. He's how a prayer is done. He's supposed to mind meld with God. That's what prayer is. But it sounds like he would have also excommunicated Abraham for arguing with God. He probably would have excommunicated a lot of people, but that's a different <laughs> set of problems. For asking uh, for the people of Rome. Yeah. yeah, right. I think I think that there's something about the kind of coercive nature of of Choni's prayer that 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 he finds objectionable. Anyway, okay. I, I don't know, prayer, there, there are different types of prayer. We've been talking about this kind of prayer where you're asking God for things, like you mm-hmm. teach but there's also gratitude and there's also praise. Yeah. Maybe a, a parent can better feel gratitude. And so I think it's hard. It's hard to say that if only because these texts are specific, specifically applied to prayer on a fast day. On a public fast is declared because there's a drought and they don't have enough food. Okay. So in general, like obviously in general, I think I think generally that sort of. You know, I'm not a parent, but like I can imagine that that would affect your psychology in the way you treat praise and prayer in general. But like in these texts, I think it's hard to it's hard to say that that's what's going on. Okay, great. So let's move on to Diane Newt. Um, and again, I think we'll see the, this kind of balance between a need for technical proficiency on the one hand, and also these the sort of psychological traits that you get from um, from having children. Can I get someone to read? Sure. Great. We learn in the right an elder eunuch or someone who does not have children cannot serve on it in Hedrick. Rabbi Yehuda adds, even a wicked person. And the reverse is true for the collection of taxes, because the Torah says, 
show him no pity or compassion, and do not shield him. Okay, so again, <laughs> yeah, it's definitely muted. Um, so again, here you get a kind of description of family status relationships that are clearly supposed to have some kind of psychological underpinning, but the psychological psychological underpinning isn't directly made explicit in this breita. Um So don't cheat with looking at the Rashi, because the Rashi gives you an answer. But let's take some guesses about what kinds of things a Breitha is concerned about and what kinds of traits that an, an old person, a eunuch, or someone who does not have children would have that would be a problem for being a judge, but would be very good at her tax collector. Lack of compassion. Lack of compassion. So say more about how that... How, like, give me one more sentence about how the lack of compassion piece comes into play. Like, why is, it, why, is it, why is someone who doesn't have children not compassionate? Or unlikely to be compassionate, let's say. I mean, until you have children, you might say, you know, I'm going to treat all my children the same, I'm just going to be considered fair about things, I'm not going to take individual differences into account. And then once you have children, you realize it, it doesn't work that way. You, right. you, you, you have to temper. So there's something about caring for particular individuals on like a long-term, day-to-day basis that means that you then are much more aware of individual differences as uh, in the cases that come before you. That's an interesting one, yeah. I have experience with disputes in the Huh, that's fascinating. I haven't thought about it. That's great. That's really good. I, 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 I experience solving disputes in the home. You right, so your kids are squabbling and you get really good at dealing with their problems so then when other people come squabbling to you about some like monetary res- dispute, you know, he owes him $50, then like you can all, you, you know how to kind of manage those, those issues. Yeah. One thing that's peculiar is that I take it that what's going on with the Zakane is that they had kids and are no longer responsible for caring. Right, really interesting for the that and reading of Beethoven. What's peculiar about that is we have always been, so far in this discussion, talking about experience as if it is something you accumulate and then retain. Yes. Like back when you asked the question, I was thinking about a relationship, like a friend I had with whom I'm no longer in a friendship, but, you know, I actually learned something from the person that then I carry around with me. Right. And this text is sort of imagining you actually do not get to carry around the experience. Why do you assume that the elder had children? Why can't we just be looking at an elder who never... We could be, but it wouldn't be. And the person who didn't have kids. In other words, there's already a category of mission of a person who doesn't have kids, or right there, a person who doesn't have kids. The Zakim presumably can't be a person without kids, otherwise they're subsumed in that category. Yeah. Or the other category is kind of highlighting young people who don't have children. Could be. Well, so why is he a eunuch? Right, well, so eunuch is also a case where he could have had kids before, and now he's a eunuch. Or he never had kids in the first place. Either way. Right? It seems to be there's some sort of psychological change that goes on. Side note, Peter Abelard. <laughs> <laughs> was a eunuch eventually. Um, by the time he wrote that. By the time he wrote that, he was a eunuch, yeah. Okay, okay, great. Fine. Was this really followed, this thing about not being, uh, not serving the Sanhedrin? I don't know. So few people who didn't have children that it almost was just making so, a point. So, right, I, I don't know. I think that they're making a point here, probably. But it's gonna, like, let's try to figure out what the point is, right? Like, um, it's unclear to me, like, how often these, any of these particular rules were, were like sort of seriously implemented. Okay, so fine. So I told you not to... I mean, just a note about that is that the, the Shliyaf C4 one, right, like part of the function of the Hineni prayer yeah. on the Yemen Narim is to turn what was the legal norm 
into like an Kiilu aspiration. Right, right. right. Like the, the whole point of the unity is that we don't actually, we don't actually do that. We stuff. don't do that, and so we recite a formula where we pretend, oh, it would be nice if we did do that. <laughs> right, right, exactly, exactly. Okay, fine. The word most sin, the Yehuda most sin. Yeah. Yehuda does not see himself as uh, you know, an antagonistic opinion. He's just offering another category because he's saying, look, Kanakama, we know you want to have a kind person. Yeah, Zakain is not a compliment. We'll see that in the Rashi in a minute. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, right. I, I don't want to read too much on the Mosif just because, uh, you know, what that has to do with any position that Rebbe, anyone, like, how that relates to the rest of the statement of Rebbe, of Rebbe Yehuda doesn't, yeah, but it is it's it's unusual. Yeah, yeah. And also, I think it's interesting just that it's Rebbe Yehuda again. Um, okay, great. So let's see. Let's see Rashi. Um, so Rashi says Zakain is one who has already forgotten the pain of raising children and will not be merciful, and so also with the eunuch, right? So so Ra- so Rashi's right. It is this idea that you have forgotten it. Whatever experience you. So it's, it's an interesting picture, right? They think that there's experiences that you have that make you good at ser- serving these communal roles, but they're very fragile. The lessons you learn from them are fragile in that over time, the further you get away from them, potentially the less clearly you'll think of them. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to resist the possibility that Rashi is alluding to our bar, Betty, Tomeh, the Heronet. Eh! Like, feeling all my person. The Avalard, it just seems like there's such an intense gendering of the public and the private sphere. And it seems like Rashi is almost a wonderful response in saying, in order to be a good judge, a man has to be also a woman. Yeah, I think that's exactly what's going on here. And it's also, it's interesting for thinking about, like, um, a lot of the kind of theoretical background for this came from a, a book by Shayla Ben-Habib. Um, and she does all this work to show that, like, you know, the enlightenment division between public and private is based on this gendered thing where, like, men are in public and women are private. Um, and that way of thinking is also filtered into, like, scholarship about rabbinic literature. Um, and I think this is a really good counterexample for a lot of that because it's not... the it's saying like men have to do things that are gendered women, gendered females. So, but so Rafi's, you know, on a, on a, on. It's still not. It's still not judges. Yeah, the end of the day, they're not judges, right? I mean, that's uh, that's clear. You gotta you gotta give them that. Okay, so let's see these two two major teams from Brachy Rabba that talk about Sarki Dulbani. One of them is the one Rafi just mentioned, which is very clearly gendered female, and then one of them is is very clearly I think gendered male. So let's start with. Um, Let's start with the one uh, from Shabbat, which is the one that gendered male. Somebody read. Shmuel Bar Nachmani said that What did it mean when it's written, Surely you are our father? Through, though Abraham regard us not, and Yisrael recognize us not, you, O Lord, are our father. From behold, your name is our redeemer. In the future, God will say to Abraham, Your children have sinned against me, and Abraham will say before us, Master of the universe, Erase them for the sanctification of your name. He, God, said, I will say it to Jacob, because Jacob had the pain of raising children, and he may ask for mercy on their behalf. And God said to him, Your children have sinned against me. And Jacob said, Master of the universe, erase them for the sanctification of your name. And God said, Elders have no reason, and youths have no counsel. Okay, so I think let's stop there for a moment. Um, Yaakov here is a sort of failed rabbinic judge, right? 
he, on the one hand, he's experienced our Gidul Banim, but he can't use that to then argue for mercy on behalf of his descendants. Right? So it's a sort of cautionary tale, I think, about a different version of the kind of fragility that Rafi pointed us to, which is that, like, just because you've had the right experience doesn't mean you're going to get to the psychological posture that these texts are sort of aiming at. So there's a, you know, there's a sort of interesting tension here, but I think here, Sargidulvanim, whatever it means, it's obviously clearly in a sort of male avot, you know, going through the avot one by one context. So it's, it seems clear from that, in combination with the, the Brashit Rabbah that we'll get to in a minute, that this phrase need not, is not gendered strongly. And that men and women can have Sargidulvanim, although that, the quality of that Sargidulvanim will be very different. Am I overreading and thinking that Jacob had Sar Gidul Banim because Rachel died and thus he had to care for Yaakov? Huh. That's really over, interesting. That's my immediate assumption, and huh. that it is a huh. gender property. It's just a gender. And that's property. why he's the only one who has it. Yeah, because Abraham, you know, I guess we can find it out. You know. <laughs> and it doesn't seem that it would apply in these other situations, right? Huh. I mean, wouldn't you say, like, a man who's a single father or something? Yeah, but note that Rashi's importing it back. To Rashi's it. importing it, right. In other words, you could say Rashi's importing a concept, and then that, the intense feminization of it in Shabbat, and the idea that yeah. it's exceptional. Listen, if the final person in the next source was Sarah, then I would buy your argument. <laughs> but that's not you're not you're not sold because it's not Sarah. Anyway, that, that was just my way. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Okay. Okay. Good. So before we de- before we decide whether how feminine we want this term to be, let's see the the kind of punch in the stomach text in Brigitte Rabba. Rafi, since you're in, so into it, can you read it for us? Oh sorry. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Alright, your travail labor. <laughs> That is the pain of conception, your childbearing, that is the pain of pregnancy. In sadness, the etza, this is the pain of nephilim. Yeah. Uh, you shall bear, this is the pain of giving birth. Children, this is the pain of raising children. Ooh. Right, okay. Rabbi Elohim, Rabbi Shimon, it is better. Oh, and that is Sargi Dulbanim. Oh, okay, cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> better for a person to raise a grove of olive trees in the Galilee than to raise a single child in the land of Israel. Wow, right? Okay. So this is this is a like pretty heart wrenching text in a lot of different ways. And does Noah really mean better or easier? Either could be both. Either one. Better, easier. Easier maybe better actually, that's nice. Um but so, like, I think that you get, I mean, there are a lot of different ways to read that last line, but I think one way, one strong way to read it is just that this is a kind of econ- economic problem. It's very hard to get this thing to survive, right? Especially a kind of Israeli thing where, like, they're just in a different economic position than their, you know, pals in, in Bavel. So, it, I don't know. It's the, again, like, this link back to, like, the difficulty of just being able to provide and, like, get this being to survive. For a, for a long period of time, um, but yeah, Rafi, I like this reading of saying that that Yaakov, it's, it's actually still so nice. Are, are yeah. we interpreting the um, it is better for a person to raise a grove of olive trees um, in an economic perspective too? I like, I so wonder. Where is that coming from? I wonder, like, why do they care about groves of olive trees? Yeah. Right. I think it's just a kind of 
And what's the, I don't understand the comparison. Is it easier? Is it more? Is it uh, monetarily better? Is it emotionally? Easier? I think it. I think it could be lots of things, but one of them is just emotionally easier because the olive trees don't like don't demand any of your emotional attention. That's number one. But it's it's funny because like usually when I think about like um, to, uh, from the Jewish tradition and talking about raising kids, you're supposed to suffer. It's it's challenging, but do it right. because it's a worthwhile investment. Right. So I think it's also that with an olive tree. You have a decent chance of returning your investment after a while. Uh, and if you're a kid, I think especially in this period, your kid might die, and then you're gonna be you're gonna be stuck. It's kind of tongue in cheek. It's kind of tongue in cheek. I mean, I'm not saying you should plant an olive tree instead of having kids, but understand that you're gonna get more from an olive tree than, than yeah. you can rely and you can rely upon from a child. So I think it could be. In isolation, that statement definitely could be tongue-in-cheek. It's very hard for me to read it tongue-in-cheek after this midrash that's breaking up, breaking up the different words in the You have to have a lot, you know, to balance out your odds. You know, uh-huh. That you, have you get a whole a grove of olive trees, but your one kid is going to be real trouble, right? But do you think really that it's economizing children? That strikes me as somewhat foreign to the... Yeah, so I... Well, I think this statement is certainly making a, a comparison between, like, which one is easier to deal with. But, like... I don't know that it's about like return on investment. It could be one of those things. Yeah. Yeah. I'm now I'm bothered by the fact that everything except the Arkidul Banim in this list seems to be not gender, but let's say sex. Yeah. If we could use such a word. Yeah. Right. And then Arkidul Banim is associated, first of all, with Adam. Yeah. Right. Which, yeah. You know, is unmarked for gender in this context. It seems a little marked for gender, but but also if it's an economic thing. Do you know what I'm saying? There's something yeah. weird about Sargadul Banim that even in this text it seems to cross the, the gender or sex line in a funny way. Well, also because just all the other ones are, maybe not Asif, but like a lot of them are kind of gendered in that they're, uh, right, they're associated with the female body in a way that this one just isn't. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe that helps helps my original point, which was that these are actually, this is a gender crossing category. The natural next thing Oh, they, right, and they don't. That's fascinating. They don't list nursing at all. I wonder if that's just because, like, this is a text written by men. Yeah, the second half seems to strongly support your idea that it's gender crossing. There's a gender that isn't, like, an androgynous category. Yeah, I think it. I think it must be an androgynous category, but it must be that they think that like the quality of the tsar is different in each case. So right, like their description of the tsar that seems to be associated with women is physical, and it seems like the the version that's described in association with men is sort of either is emotional, psychological, or religious. Right, like what's going on in this text in Shabbat seems to me to be. I'm really worried about the fact that my kids have sort of done this bad done this bad thing and I feel responsible for that on a kind of moral level. Yeah. Okay. You're coming back. Yeah. The, 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 the mainstream reading, the, the pre-gender yeah. reading is that Shabbat Day Tet refers to uh, all the males he had. Right. 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 So. And that fits the androgyny reading as opposed to the Right, as opposed to the gender. gender. Okay, interesting. I feel like the Yakovan 
and like have him as a single father thing. I think that's kind of interesting. Okay, how, like what's our time schedule? Three forty-five. Three forty-seven. Okay, great. Okay, I just want to. Okay, we're gonna take two minutes. Skip to the very end. Take five. Take five. Okay. Okay. Fine. So I'll take. I'll take three. Split. Split the difference. I want to think about. As I was thinking about these texts, I wanted to think about kind of American versions of um, pictures of where responsibility come from. And you have some lovely, beautifully written and pithy excerpts from Abigail Adams, which will skip. But I kept thinking back to this, this text from Sonia Sotomayor. And, you know, wherever your sort of thoughts are about this as a principle for the American Supreme Court, I think it's interesting to put it in dialogue with these sources. So, so Sonia Sotomayor is giving a, a speech to a, a sort of Latino, Latina um, like law students group or lawyers group, and, and she said this in 2002, and it got her in a lot of trouble. Um, Justice O'Connor has often been cited as saying that a wise old man and a wise old woman will reach the same conclusion in deciding cases. But I am not so sure Justice O'Connor is the author of that line, since Professor Resnick associates, attributes it to Supreme Court Justice, Justice Coyle. I am also not so sure that I agree with the statement. First, as Professor Martha Minow has noted, there can never be a universal definition of wise. Second, I would hope that a wise Latina woman, with the richness of her experiences, would often, would more often than not reach a better conclusion than a white male who hasn't lived that life. So, I, you know, not to say that like Hazal and Sonia Sotomayor agree about everything—that's obviously silly—but it's an interesting take on what, how our experiences would then affect our performance of public duties, um, and especially public duties that are related to, to law and related to dealing with people who may be in sort of particularly difficult or straitened circumstances. So thank you very much.